I want to resist something that I think is happening in many popular readings of William Blake these days, that he is being driven into a kind of moony romanticism, a state of Beulah, in which the imagination and Blake's account of the imagination is taken to be self-caused, as if out of nothing, really as the product of what Blake might condemn as the overheated brain or living by demonstration. There's a kind of scientific naturalism that's infecting Blake studies and is doing what Blake said Albion was doing at the beginning of Jerusalem, the emanation of the giant Albion, claiming my mountains are my own and I will keep them to myself. It's cutting us off from Eden eternity, which is the main driver of Blake's work, his life. He devotes himself to that. He puts all his energies into it. I give you a golden thread, he says. And I think there are five key thoughts that puncture that tendency and smash the spectre that it conjures so that we can break through and see Blake as guiding us towards Eden Eternity, towards Jerusalem, not just into a naturalistic view of the world with a bit of imaginative colour added on to the end. And the first of those five thoughts comes early in his work, in the little booklet he published that begins with the statement, there is no natural religion. Now what he meant by that was that there was no religion, imagination, spirit, creativity that could come purely from what is now called the natural world and was just beginning to be called the natural world in his time which was meant as an account of all things given by the physical sciences alone, cut off from God, at best maybe started by God in a kind of deistic moment when God created the heavens and the earth and then turned his back on the heavens and the earth. No, Blake knows that creation, being, reality, depends every moment of its existence on the divine emanation outpouring and so he says, there can be no natural religion. We can't create anything, but we can co-create with the everything. As Blake puts it, if it were not for the poetic or prophetic character, the philosophic and experimental would soon be at the ratio of all things and stand still, unable to do other than repeat the same dull round over again. He's quite clear that if the cosmos is a closed system, captured fully by the natural sciences, it turns in on itself and it spirals down, it slips away from being itself, it just becomes the ratio, the dull round over again. And so the philosophic and scientific or experimental engagements with reality draw on the poetic and prophetic, which is to say the divine genius that is the open system nature of reality and so draws in that divine life continually 
there's no natural religion. Imagination is the divine vision, not of the world, nor of man, nor from man, as he is a natural man. Blake also says, imagination is the divine vision. He doesn't just mean a romantic account of what in humanity might be called a bit divine, because it seems a bit glowy, a bit imaginative, a bit creative. No, the imagination is our point of contact with the divine. It's not to reduce the divine at all, it's to open us onto the divine. As Blake, I think, knew of Coleridge's remark that the imagination is our I am the sharing and the divine I amness. And the minute you sever that link, imagination falls into what Coleridge called fantasy, which is a kind of empty playfulness that may amuse us and cause us some kind of consolation but just falls in on itself and can't do anything creative or imaginative in the world. It's why Blake thought the Bible was inspired. He saw it as a portal from the divine by which we can play imaginatively in the fullest sense with all that imagery, all those stories, all those names, as of course he does in his great poetry. And so make the divine afresh, even as the divine is making itself afresh in the world. So that's the first thought. There is no natural religion. The second thought is related, um, but in a way focuses on what God does about that, which as almost the last plate of this little booklet that begins with there's no natural religion says, God becomes as we are that we may become as he is. Now this is actually an old patristic comment in Christianity. I presume Blake knew that. But it speaks about how the divine is in the world to, as it were, take us back to the divine, to open Eden eternity to us, which is always already what everything is contained in any, anyway. That the story is in a way one of return that Blake tells, but it's really more profoundly one of realisation because it's not a return in the sense of something was actually distant from the divine. It's a return as in us waking up to our proximity to the divine. The divine body is the human imagination and the bosom of God. It's both at the same time that the divine can be in our breast, in our imagination. But also that's only because we're already in the bosom of God. Um, the infinite dwells in the finite as the finite does in the infinite the inside is the out and the outside is the in inside this is what eternity enables us to see what the eternals can see in Blake that transcendence is imminence in its imminent form it's free to explode space and time and lift us back to the divine the centre is the circumference the minute particulars the very smallness of things is their everything Angels that he sees can be both in his mind and in the cosmos because both mind and cosmos fully overlap already. And it's when we get that that we see the angels. The emanations are the expansions and the contractions, like the breath of creation, like the heartbeat of being. Um, life is like being an Aeolian harp, to use Coleridge's famous metaphor. We position ourselves to be sung by the breath of the Spirit. And I think this is very close to what Blake said. 
what Blake meant when he talked about kissing the joy as it flies and so living in eternity's sunrise. This is the story we're caught up in and Blake's quite clear about it. God becomes as we are that we may become as he is. The third point I wanted to make was why this really matters. It's not just a kind of extension of romanticism and bringing it back to a theological vision. It really matters because, as Blake says, the desire of man is infinite. More more is the cry of a mistaken soul. Less than all cannot satisfy man, he said. You know, we are the creature that longs for the infinite. Unless, and unless we're really in touch with the infinite, we just consume that which is finite until it runs out, which of course has become even more pressing in the 200 years since Blake was writing these things. Um, this helps us, I think, to understand Blake's relationship to nature. Um, it's sometimes thought that Blake doesn't have a good understanding of nature, but I think he completely did, because what he understands is that the natural world, so-called, is in a way on its way to realising its full creative potential. It's as if what we see, which is often shaped with all row or generation eyes, maybe Beulah eyes at best, a kind of love of the natural world, is not to see the natural world as it fully is and part of the full creation of the world around us and ourselves will be complete when we see creation in its entirety, when the incarnation comes into creation. That's Blake's vision of nature. Consciousness has a key part to play in that, maybe by naming the beauty, by singing of the glory, by lifting out of unconscious instinct into full conscious manifestation. I sometimes think it's a bit like what the artist does with oil paint, squeezes it out of the tube and turns it into a glorious landscape on the canvas. That in a way is our vocation as natural creatures who are also divine creatures to link and so show how everything is already in Eden eternity. Intelligences must form it. Um, and that's why, although Blake can be very, very critical of the single vision and Newton's sleep of science when it's cut off from Eden eternity, he's also absolutely clear that in the eschatological vision, which is the realisation and return, Bacon, Newton and Locke will dwell with Shakespeare, Milton and Chaucer. The arrows of their intellect will together fly across the heavens as the divine chariots descend in a glorious vision of all things as he describes it at the end of Jerusalem, the emanation of the, the giant Albion. So we must long for the infinite and recognise that we do, but recognise what the infinite really is so that we don't just consume what's finite in a hideous spiral down into apocalyptic consumption of the worst kind, not of the greatest kind. Remember, more and more is the cry of the mistaken soul, less than all cannot satisfy man. And the great thing about Blake is he shows us what that all can be. And this is also so important because it's about adjusting our relationship with life and death. In a way, another take on Blake's view of nature is to understand how life and death relate, because death is the portal into more life. It's about transcending eternal death, as he described it, and realising that actually eternal life is prior and always already was. 
you know, there's a reason he died happy, why the reports of him on his deathbed was if he was seeing heaven. These aren't just romantic, hagiographical, written-after-the-event accounts. I think this is seeing a true perception of what Blake saw. He went through it in life. We know that. He struggled. He hated and loathed and felt rejected. Um, he no doubt suffered from what we would now call mental um, ill health as well at times. Um, but it was precisely by going through that, those parallels with eternal death, that he found eternal life. As he puts it, this world of imagination is the world of eternity. It is the divine bosom into which we shall go after the death of the vegetated body. He knew that's where he was going. And so this helps us to reimagine what death might be, not just see ourselves again in a kind of closed cosmos, but one that's open and expansive. And the fifth point I wanted to make was to realise that Blake was an idealist. Um, he wasn't a naturalist. He wasn't clearly a materialist. Um, but he was an idealist, which is to say that that which is most like the mental is that which is most fundamental. And I think you can show this. You don't just need to infer it from his poetry. Um, one way of doing it is to realise that he was one of the first readers of the Gita, the Bhagavad Gita, um, after the Enlightenment. He was one of the first post-Enlightenment figures to discover absolute idealism again, as it's described in the Indian philosophy. And indeed, as was common in Christianity, but got lost at the Reformation and the Enlightenment. Um, we know this for sure. He drew one of the first translators of the Bhagavad Gita, Charles Wilkins. And he made comments like the antiquities of every nation under heaven are no less sacred than that of the Jews. The Christian and Jewish traditions are only one of the great antiquities under the heaven. And I think this is why he creates his own mythological system, because he realises that it's been so lost by the satanic mills of materialist generation um, that he needs to create it afresh and so does through Oro generation, Bueller in eternity, the four Zoas and so on. And, and there's even good evidence that he draws on the Gita so to do that. So for example, um, Vala may well draw on Maya um, because both Vala in Blake's system and Maya in the Gita are the entities that trap human beings in human-made temples and so close down divine temples. Um, all this, his figure of Rintra, which might well draw on the Sanskrit Ritta, which is a kind of cosmic order, but it's one that orders things by a kind of abstract philosophy and so actually does a violence to the divine life. Um, I think that the notion of emanations God existed in human beings as human beings exist in the divine, that interplay of all things that the Eternals know. That very much is a vision of things from the Bhagavad Gita, as is Blake's notion of self-annihilation. You know, this is not a post-Freudian account, as if we must become egoless. Um, no, it's about becoming co-creators with all that is. Um, as the Gita puts it, for it is through acting without attachment that man attains the highest um, that's very much like Blake's notion of kissing the joy as it flies, um, giving ourselves into the freedom of the divine creativity rather than trying to possess the great mountains of reality as if they were our own. Um, Blake's eternity 
and Divine Body is very much like the Gita's account, I think, too, of remaining absorbed in consciousness itself, as it were, being focused on that aspect of reality, and so becoming a knower of reality, as the Gita puts it, not a person who thinks they understand things by relying on demonstration, by relying on material accounts of things. Um, mental things alone are real, Blake says, what is called corporeal. Nobody knows of its dwelling place. It's a fallacy. Its existence is an imposture. What is the existence out of mind of thought? Where is it but in the mind of a fool? If you think that, the brain generates consciousness. If you think that, his visions were a product of mental illness, the collapse of the default mode network of some kind of drug, psychedelic-induced experience. You're missing the whole point. That's the, the mind of a fool speaking, Blake says. Um, what is existence out of the mind of thought? That's what it is. I think his, his view of neuroscience now, which no doubt he would have been fully engaged with, would have wanted to see the brain as the receiver and the filter of um, all things. It's a kind of door of perception. Um, it's not the generator of consciousness. And we must learn to play with its capacities to both open and close, to both expand and contract, um, to both to see the minute and to see everything, to see the centre and the circumference. That's the way to understand these things now. And again, his poetry can still help us do that. Um, everything you see is already a vision of one sort or another. The question is, what vision are you drawing on? Is it Ulro? Is it Generation? Is it Bueller? Is it Eternity? So these few comments, I think, open up Blake once more from this tendency to close him down, um, to make him into a moony romantic who offers a kind of consolation to a world that's otherwise feels like it's dead and dying. Um, Blake knew of that world. He writes at the beginning of its manifestation in our times. And he says, there is no natural religion. If you think religiosity, imagination, spirituality is a sort of evolutionary byproduct of survival, you're already on the spiral down. God becomes as we are, that we may become as God is. God is deeply involved in every moment of life, not just kicking it off at the beginning of all things and becoming alert to that open, porous cosmos is a key part of his task as well. And we need it because the desire of man, humanity, is infinite. If we don't latch on to the infinite once again, not pretend infinities, but the real life-giving source that we feel rushing through our body, minds and souls, we're going to carry on this path of consuming the finite, which has become so pressing in the two or three hundred years since Blake was writing. He challenges us and he guides us to see all. So I think we must resist this tendency to close Blake down. He gives us a golden thread. That's what he says. That's what he promises. And we mustn't turn it into a brass or a plastic imitation.